It's so good to be with you, and yes, you know, when you're in San Diego, you make comments about the weather when we have weather, right? It's, it's different. If you grow up in a, a different place, you might not um, uh, think about it too much. Some of you have been watching some of the NFL football playoffs, and we've seen real weather on, on, on TV, uh, you know, games that are in zero degrees or uh, snow that is covering the whole field where you have to invite your whole city to come out and shovel out the stadium. People from Buffalo, you know, interesting people. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I, one, one thing, I actually love this kind of time of year because I'm a sports fan. And, and I, I think it's kind of like this cruel thing that happens because January, many of us make uh, decisions about eating healthier, drinking less, all those things that you're exercising more, all those things that you want to do. And then all these great sport playoffs are on that just beg for chicken wings and, st- and nachos, right? And you're like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Uh, and so, um, th- but this time of year, one of the things that I love about the playoffs, especially in a year like this where I don't have a, a dog in the fight, there's no team I really care about, um, but I love watching the different fans. Because there's some fans that they just represent their team well, right? Or you, I can tell you a team and you'll have emotion about a certain fan. For example, I, I can tell you Raiders, if you know anything about football. You have an image in your head about what Raider fans look like, right? We all have that image. We know, we know Raider fans. They represent their team pretty well. You can think of, um, and, and then you have the fans like, well, we're San Diego, so how about Dodger fans? What's the image that's in your head of, of Dodger fans? Don't say it out loud, you're in church. So you have, so we have different a- images. People have images of, of San Diego fans, and that is, we have other things to do. That's the image they have of us, right? So, but it, what I love is seeing how people represent their team, and especially when you look at, like, college football. We look like the teams in the South, where it goes, God Football team, uh, oh, no, sorry, football team, God, probably for many of them, then family, somewhere in there. They try to mix those. But if you think of, like, Alabama fans, we might have an image. The image I like about them most is when they're just in disbelief that they lost. And they're, you know, like, can you believe it? We lost. Um, and so we have those ideas of different fans and how they represent their teams. Um, as many of you know, I'm a Red Sox fan, and uh, that's because I follow the Lord. And uh, so... <laughs> But there's been times when I've had to decide how to represent my team. I, I remember uh, when we were early on in our marriage, my wife and I went to New York, and we went to see a Red Sox against the Yankees game in the old Bronx Stadium, in the old Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. We're in our hotel, and we're getting ready to go to the game, and I have my Red Sox gear, and I'm, I'm debating, should I really wear it? I've never been to a game in the Bronx before. And, and I told my wife, you know what? Because I love you, and we're, we've only been married a couple of years, I won't wear this stuff, don't worry. She goes, okay, that's probably a good decision. And then, uh, so we're about to walk out the door, and I said, ah, I can't do this. I just can't do this. So I ran in and grabbed my Red Sox stuff and went to the game. And during the whole day, it was fine, except for everywhere I went that day, people were going, you suck, pal. You, you know, it just, th- that was just the whole day. And I said, yes, I know I do. Thank you. And, and, and I, it's my fault of whatever's happened on the field. But I just, something in me, I just had to do it. Even this last year, as many of you know, when I was on sabbatical, I went to some baseball games. I went to a Yankees against Mets game in Mets Stadium, and, and I pull up into the parking lot before the game, and there's a group of people wearing Yankees gear tailgating. There's a group of people on the other parking lot uh, uh, spot 
with uh, Mets gear, and there was an empty spot. So I pulled in between them. I got out, and I, got, I said hi to everyone. They were nice. And I put on my Red Sox stuff, and they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I think they have an image about Red Sox fans and who we are. <laughs> but we think about when you're something you're passionate about, we represent. We, it, the newer words are, are you repping your team well? Uh, we're looking at this passage in Scripture here today. Um, we're kind of in the middle of a scene where Jesus, it's actually the longest uh, section where if your Bible has red letters for Jesus, it's the, the section that has the most red letters in a condensed area. So this is the teachings of Jesus, the things that are important to him, uh, the things that he wants to leave with his disciples, a prayer that he will pray for his disciples. And in the midst of that that we're looking at today, he talks about just this life that we're called to live, this example he leaves for us, and then he says, now I want you to represent this kingdom the way you live. And the question we're going to wrestle with today is, what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God? And we talk about it quite often, but how do we represent this kingdom that we're in? Because it's so much more significant than any sports team or anything else. And it's not just the clothes we wear, but it's something that's deeply rooted in that would cause us to make the decision that I want to represent this kingdom. And that's what Jesus does in the story we're looking at today. So as we jump back into the text, would you pray with me as we start? God, we thank you for this time. I thank you again just for your word. And I pray now that as it has shaped people throughout the centuries, would you shape us today? God, would you awaken our hearts to who you are? To remember that you've already given us so much. You've loved us first. Now you're inviting us into this life. So open our eyes to this life. Open our eyes to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this uh, passage here today, again, we're, we jumped right into the middle of it from the scripture reading because we began it last week. And the context of what's happening is this is uh, a scene where the disciples and Jesus are having this meal together. Now, there's a little debate. Is, is this the, the Passover meal or the day before the Passover meal? We're not going to get into those nuances because there's some discrepancy between this and some of the other uh, uh, gospels and which meal it is. But it's some, there is, was a tradition of a pre-Passover meal that would happen that could have fit with this timeline as well. Either way, it's a dinner that Jesus is having, having with his disciples. It's one that even Da Vinci paints as the Last Supper, as with the th some of the things that are happening in this event. But what's happening here is they're eating this meal in this upper room of some house. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because there's uh, something kind of interesting going on that was queued up last week, and then we read about it again today was that this is the meal that Jesus knew that one of his disciples named Judas was going to betray him, and he would betray him very soon. And they're having this meal together, and it's a very intimate meal. Last week we saw that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and, and this symbol of service, and he said, now do as I've done for you. And so they're having this intimate meal, but it's one in which I, I kind of, as I think about it, like, well, why does Judas even need to betray Jesus? Why don't the, the Jews just bust down the door and say, we found you? And part of it is because this is probably a secret meal going on. They're probably doing this in, in, in hiding from uh, the authorities and from the crowds. 
And because we know from the other gospels that actually the disciples found this upper room by following someone who was carrying a jar of water, and, it, and not because it's some random, some guy was carrying a jar, a jar of water, they thought that's a good place to go, is because actually somehow ahead of time, they set up some kind of clandestine series of clues to say, we have to go in quietly. The crowds, uh, people are looking for us. And so here's, I set it up with this person who, probably a servant who worked for a wealthy person because we find that it's a, a wealthy house that they go to. And they're following this person, maybe two by two or whatever, and the symbol of this jar on his head. And when he sets it down in front of the house, they know that's the house we're going to. It's kind of really interesting that it's kind of this secret meeting going on. And, we, and Luke gives us another clue to this in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 4. I have it on the screen for you. It says this. This is what happened right before the meal. It says, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. And Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So what we get is this little clue that because it's Passover week, that we know the uh, population of Jerusalem is not just a little bigger, but it's 10, 20, 30 times bigger than normal uh, with the amount of people in the crowds. People are looking for Jesus, and they want to follow him, or they want to hear from him, but also the religious leaders have grown very, very concerned about Jesus and what the movement of those following him, and they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him and take him away, but when no crowd is present. So at this meal, while they're, when they're having this meal together, there's this, uh, this background story that is probably being done in somewhat of a secret place. And by the way, in this upper room of a large house, and archaeologists have found in this uh, one portion of Jerusalem in the first century, they have remains of very large Roman houses that would be two stories. You'd have to have quite uh, a bit of wealth. Uh, we know that uh, the house of the high priest Caiaphas, who pops up later in this in these books, um, he had one of those houses, and so um, they found the evidence of that region. So we have an idea of where this took place. We don't know exactly where. If you go to Jerusalem today, they'll take you to a room that says this is where it happened. That's not where it happened, but it might be the area where it happened. So that's what's happening. Now, that's the background context, and now they're having this meal. Jesus got up during it. He washes their feet, and now they're back and they're reclining around the table together. And Jesus just said, if I cleanse you, speaking of spiritual cleansing, you are clean, but not all of you are clean. Verse 18 of John 13. So let's go into our story for today. Then Jesus says, now, when he just said, you're not all clean, and he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who have, I've chosen, but to fulfill the passage of Scripture— he who shares bread with me has turned against me. And Jesus is using a quote from Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, that says this, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one in whom I shared my bread, has turned against me. So he's recalling their minds. He's using that psalm to say, just like the psalmist felt betrayed with, by someone who he shared his bread with, so I am sharing my bread tonight and will be betrayed. So Jesus then says in verse 19 of John 13, he says, I'm telling you this now before it happens. So when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I say I am. So again, I want you to know all of these things. I'm proclaiming that I am God. All things are in my hands. All I control, uh, all things are under my control. And I know it's about to happen. 
Know that because what's going to happen to me has I've foreseen and I'm doing it willingly. So, let's skip down a little bit. Verse 21. Jesus said these things and he was troubled in spirit. And he said, one of you is going to betray me. And then his disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which one of those he meant. If you've read this story before, is that peculiar to you? To think like, wait, Jesus, didn't you say it's the one you're sharing your bread with? It's the one you dip the, the morsel of your bread with? Um, and everyone's looking like, hey, I'm not sharing bread with Jesus tonight. <laughs> this is no way. Like, and Jesus dips his bread and is like, hey, you want a bite? And everyone's like, nope, not me. <laughs> like, what does that look like? So to understand it a little bit more, let me set more of that scene. We've talked before about this kind of meal. They were uh, reclining around the table, not sitting at tables the way we would. So they're reclining to their left, which would be tradition. And as they recline, uh, that means your head is on the head of the person next to you and vice versa. And the seat of honor in this case would be, well, obviously Jesus is the host. He's the, the main one. To his left would be the most honored guest of the night. The most honored guest of the night would be one that traditionally you, could, you would share a morsel or a part of your meal with that person. So the scene is that as the disciples showed up, most likely Jesus is inviting Judas to come sit next to him in the seat of honor. To say, I want you to be close to me tonight. Now, some might say, keep your enemies closer, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. But I believe that what's happening is this intimate moment and an opportunity for grace. And so he invites Judas to sit next to him, knowing what he already knows. It's a pretty incredible picture. Now, to his right, we have someone laying, uh, reclining towards him that later on we find. As the disciples, when Jesus says, it's he who I share my bread with. And all the disciples kind of look around and say, well, we don't know who that might be. Again, Luke chapter 22, verse 22 says this. The Son of Man will go as it has been, dis, uh, been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. So they began questioning among themselves as to which one might do this. Again, they're like, we don't want to be that one. So they're questioning. But think of the scene now. Judas already knows that he's had the meeting, he's received the money, and he has already determined that he will do this. But they still don't know it's him. So he's filled with incredible amount of deception. He's fitting in with the crowd. He's doing the things the rest of the disciples are doing. He looks just like them. And so they wonder, well, who could it be? And that's where you have this great scene where Simon Peter motions to the disciple who's reclining on Jesus, which, by the way, John, this is, we, we believe it's John. He calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. That's a great nickname to give yourself. And there's more to it, but I love it. And Peter motions to him, and he says, hey, ask him which one he means. Now, why didn't, why didn't G Peter just say, hey, Jesus, who do you mean? Because well, he already said, I'll tell you who it is. But again, a picture of this scene and the intimacy of it is John is the one whose head is closest to Jesus. He says, ask him. Hey, ask him. And so there's a scene where John looks and goes, hey, Master, Lord, Rabbi, kind of confused. Who is it? It's not me, right? Who is it? And Jesus said, well, it's the one who I share my, this morsel of bread with. And now Jesus, reclining towards Judas, has this conversation. 
where he looks at him and he says in verse 27, where it says, as soon as Judas takes the bread that Jesus gave to him, Satan enters him, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, and he said, what you're about to do, do quickly. And no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to Judas. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought he was getting up to buy what he needed for the festival, for Passover, or to give money to the poor. But as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So again, they still don't know? <laughs> but Jesus had some sort of conversation, and, and perhaps we don't know the whole conversation. But with Judas, eventually what we do know is he said, what you're going to do, do. Did Jesus give him one last chance to repent? Did he give him one opportunity to say, hey, you don't have to do this? What did that conversation look like? We don't know. But it's this moment of intimacy, and maybe it's just Jesus looks at him and says, I know what you've been up to and what you're about to do. I know. I just want you to know that. Kind of like the parent when the kid comes in and is like, I didn't do it. Like, no, I, I mean, I know. We have cameras in the house now. We know. <laughs> but he looks at him and he has that moment. And Judas gets up and goes out. Now, let me do a quick side note uh, before we get to a little bit more about this passage. Because there's an interesting thing here. It says Jesus gives Judas the bread, and that's when Satan enters him. We thought as a teaching team it would be worth just taking a minute or two to say, wait, can Satan enter me? Might be a question you have. It's a frightening term, a statement, isn't it? And, and to think like, wait, how did Satan enter one of Jesus' disciples? So we thought we'd just give you just a couple side notes uh, to think about. First is this. Um, we, we even addressed it last week, that idea of the devil made me do it. Does the devil make us do things? Well, you know, we're pretty good with our sin nature of doing things on our own quite often. But Satan can use your sinful nature to put thoughts into your mind. And when I say Satan, I mean uh, the powers of evil in the world. It might not be a direct encounter with Satan. There, we do believe that there's a spiritual world. There's angels, demons. And to, there may be times when God or the forces of evil will use our nature, our sinful nature against us to put thoughts into our mind and to see what we're going to do with them. We see in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, uh, the disciples are confronting a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they say to them, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart and you've now, with this, these thoughts, now that you lie to the Holy Spirit? So we see that there's opportunity or examples of maybe where their minds have been influenced by them. Now, so that's, got, Satan could, the forces of evil can use our sinful nature against us by giving us ideas. Now, Here's the other thing, though. We don't believe through Scripture that demons can enter you uninvited. In this case, Judas has not just opened his heart up to being deceived, but has entered full on in to welcome this deception. And so this is not something that can happen. And if you are a believer, sealed by the Holy Spirit, walking with Jesus, that this cannot happen. Because we know, according to Scripture, in 1 Corinthians, for example, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells. Friends, where God dwells, Satan cannot. 
And so if you are sealed and captured by the Holy Spirit of God, that you are free from any sort of evil spirit entering you. Can we be affected by the world around us? Yes. Can you still give in to temptation? Yes. But you can rest assured that this will, what happened to Judas cannot happen to you when the Holy Spirit dwells in you because of what Jesus Christ has done by accepting him, declaring him Lord. Okay? We want to give you that assurance. Um, here's the other thing. The spiritual force of evil, demons, Satan, they know that they're defeated. They know they do not have ultimate victory. They know well about the resurrection. And the whole point is to wreak havoc on our world, on God's world. To do all they can to disrupt the kingdom of God. Jesus says this about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says that he's a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So there's this idea of, of Satan is, the whole point is to bring lies into the world and into our hearts and wants to have you question your faith, wants to question God, question your salvation, and and to all of those things are tactics of the enemy. So last of this side note is, so what should we do? One, we want to resist. We want to be watchful. And we want to be careful not to open our hearts and our minds to evil things. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and following. Look at this. Be sober-minded and be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, loring, a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour Resist him Firm in your faith Knowing that the same kinds of suffering Are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world So they were experiencing persecution and suffering And thinking is this Satan coming to get us Is he possessing us Is he what's he doing Well he wants to destroy you He wants to hurt your faith He wants you to give up on hope in Christ So resist Do your best to resist And submit your hearts to God so we just thought it'd be an interest or worthwhile talking about that. Now, here's a couple of things of just quick notes about when you feel like, am I giving my thoughts up to evil? Here's just a few things to think about. First is this. Ask, does this thought go against Scripture? That's the first one you want to ask. The things in my mind, does this match up with Scripture? Judas could say, hey, should I be betraying, you know, the Messiah? Does that match up with Scripture? No, there's all kinds of things. So ask yourself that question. Does this thought go against what's written in Scripture? Next one is this. Is this thought or this temptation, this action, does it dishonor God's character? Does it bring glory to Jesus and who he is? Or does it take glory from him? Is it about me or is it about lifting up who God is? Next one. Is this thought cr contrary to Christ honoring love for others? Notice that. You might be able to hide a lot of things and say, well, it's just me. It's just a secret thing that's happening in my own life. But what's it doing to your marriage? What's it doing to uh, people around you that they might not see what's happening, but how is it affecting your behavior when you're outside of it? So is, is this thought, are these actions or going against, they're contrary to Christ honoring love for others. See, we are called to have this honoring love of others to be examples to the world and a lot of the deception that we see shows up some of them are subtle think of like gossip slander those little small little conversations bringing other people down well they'll never hear about it is that christ honoring to them is that christ honoring love 
There's more obvious examples, thing, things like pornography and stuff like that. Oh, it's secret. Nobody knows I'm doing it. Is that honoring to the people who are being exploited and put on those images? Is that being honoring to those in your current marriage or maybe your single and your future marriage? It's not Christ-honoring love to them. So you could take those thoughts captive. And then the last thought or thing is, does this thought that I'm going looking at make sin attractive? We live in a world that wants to make sin attractive. We're living in a time when they're saying, oh, this is good. This is actually, this will benefit you. Everybody should live this way. And there's articles I read every day. I get this wide range of different articles uh, just to kind of understand culture. It is kind of crazy where we've gotten on even the idea of a relationship or marriage. And now it's like, well, no, you should, there's this idea of, of spouse swapping and all kinds of things. You think, how in the world do we think that that's attractive and good and for the flourishing of humankind? But the world wants us to think it is. So are you giving your heart to things that make sin seem attractive and good? It's contrary to the life that God's designed for us. So, it could be a whole sermon. That's your few-minute side note because it's worth thinking or hearing about because Judas gave his heart over and Satan entered him. So now let's jump back in to the rest of this. So Judas leaves, and when he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. We talked about that last week. Now his full character is going to be on display, and that's going to be through his crucifixion and resurrection. We're going to see that he is truly who he said he was. And he says, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, but where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, I'm going to resurrect and be on earth for a while, then I'm going to ascend into heaven. And then get this, verse 34. I have it on the screen because it's so important that we hear it. A new command I give to you. After all this that he's done, after washing their feet, after talking about the deception that's in the room, all of those things, he says, a new command I give to you to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, by what? By loving one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. You want to rep the kingdom of God? But Jesus says, do you know how people will know if you are part of my kingdom? Do you know how people will know if you are a disciple of mine? It's not by your Bible verses you have memorized. It's not by how eloquent your prayers are. It's not by how often you attend on Sunday morning. None of those things. Those things are good, and they're you know, reading scripture, memorizing it, praying, all that's great. We believe church attendance is great because we get to interact with each other. But they don't know you're a disciple by these things. Judas did all the things the other disciples did. He looked like them, except for one thing. Well, probably a few, but one of them was that the true love for one another wasn't in him. They will know your disciples by how you love one another. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus says, what does a kingdom look like? That's what he chooses. We should take note, underline it in your Bibles, circle it in your Bibles, highlight it, say, just make sure we understand that this is repping the kingdom of God, loving one another. And as it ends, Peter says, Lord, wherever you're going, I will follow you, and I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows three times tonight, you're going to deny me. And Peter's thinking, yeah, right. Fast forward, rooster crows three times, he's already denied him. 
or before the rooster crows, he denied him three times. So here's some question for us with this story. So we've seen a picture of God's kingdom on display, and I just have three thoughts for you that I want us to really consider and then to think, what does it mean for us? And the first is this. In God's kingdom, we experience the depth of his love. Notice the scene of this story. It is an intimate story where God himself, who's in flesh, gets down on his knees to wash the feet of his disciples to serve them. It wasn't just this. In the ancient world, everyone believed in some sort of God or gods. It was everyone believed in God. That wasn't a big deal. But the interesting thing about the God of the Bible is he is a personal God who loves his people. Gods in the ancient world were selfish gods. Sure, they could make the harvest happen or fertility and all of this. That's why you believed in gods and you would give uh, uh, sacrifices to those gods so that you'd get something from them because the gods wanted you to give to them so they would give back to you. Our God gives to us because he loves us. That was a radical, crazy idea in the ancient world and it's a radical, crazy idea today. And so when we see this story, I want us to really grasp, don't glance over this. This moment, this intimacy, this, this great love he has for us. Even Judas, who is betraying him, to call him to the seat of honor, to sit with him face to face, likely having an arm around him, knowing he'll be betrayed. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we do have a high priest. We have someone who advocates to God the Father for us, who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He's one who's been tempted in all things, just like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. See, God's great love for us it shows up in Jesus experiencing the depth of betrayal, the depth of just loss. We see soon uh, in, in the other Gospels talk about this moment in Gethsemane where Jesus said, Father, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do, but this is hard. Almost to the point of, he's described of agony. The authors say that there was blood in his sweat, meaning he's agonizing over this. Jesus experienced life that we experience. Our God loves us so much, he wanted to know what life was like as a human. And so he gave up his Godship to experience that because of that great love. So in God's kingdom, we experience the depth of his love. You'll find that in no other kingdom of gods, little g gods in the world. Next thing we see, in God's kingdom, we can have assurance of his unending grace. Paul writes, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Those who are in Christ, we cannot out-sin his grace. Now, I want you to see two things in this story. One was Judas, who never received, he rejected Jesus. He rejected his lordship. He rejected what he would do on the cross. But notice Peter. Peter messed up. 
Peter said, God, I, I will never deny, uh, deny you. I will lay down my life for you. And within the, the span of whatever, a day, he had denied him three times. He actually called down a curse on his name and said, I swear, I am cursed if I've ever met Jesus. Peter says that. Don't you think that that's a moment where you're like, Jesus is like, oh, seriously, Peter? You're going to, a curse? Really? You're bringing that down? You see, I believe that G Peter is an example that many of us can uh, relate to. He had a deep-rooted love for Jesus. He proclaimed him as his Lord. He believed that he was God, yet he was humid, and he was dumb sometimes. <laughs> Anyone relate to Peter? Raise your hand high, right? <laughs> yeah, all of us. But here's the beauty. P Peter couldn't, because he was sealed by the Holy Spirit, because he was captured by Jesus, Jesus was his Lord. And so therefore his grace abounds in Peter's sin. For you and for me who get made Jesus Lord of our lives, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus today, there is no condemnation on your life anymore. It is done in Christ. Amen? It's over. So in the kingdom of God, we can have assurance of his unending grace. And finally, in God's kingdom, we are his ambassadors. We are the ones who represent him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, he literally says that. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. Jesus says, the world will know you are with me by your love for one another. You are representing the kingdom. You are ambassadors of this new way of living. That's you. That's what we're called be by the way we'll, we'll see this redemption of peter as the story goes on and we'll see how he becomes this ambassador for the kingdom of god and think of the depth that peter now understands about grace think of the depth that peter now understands about love because he made it through this failure and restoration and growth. So in God's kingdom, we're invited now to be his ambassadors. Friends, if I'm starting a religion, the last people in the world I want to represent my character is people. <laughs> we won't do it well sometimes. Sometimes we will. A lot of times we're going to fall short because this is very difficult. Would you agree? But again, out of God's great love for us as he entrusts this to us. Because he knows in the life and the kingdom, this is the best way to live. We are designed for this. When we live in life in the kingdom, we actually flourish. Our relationships flourish. Our lives flourish. Maybe not always financially in everything you want, but we live a life free of shame and guilt. All of those things. A life of freedom. So we're going to end our time, and uh, we're going to respond with a song, and then uh, we're going to do one thing a little bit different today, just uh, so you know, after that song, uh, Max Villalobos is going to come up, our chairman of the elder board.
and end our time. But So we're going to uh, sing this song together in response to this message today. So we're going to just invite you to stay where you are. If you feel like standing, you can. If you don't want to, that's fine. If you want to pray, you want to reflect, you want to sing wholeheartedly, let's respond to this kingdom of God that we're invited into and this amazing love that God has for us. So would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the message that you give us of hope. We thank you for the message that we are have assurance of salvation with you. That your, great, your grace cannot be undone by our failures. We thank you that we are caught up in your love. And Lord, I thank you that you invite us to a life of love. So would you give us the strength and the power and the grace to love one another well. That the world may know what team we represent. It's a team that's living in your kingdom. So we thank you and we give you this time. In Jesus' name.